Hey everyone, this is going to be a little bit of a special treat for the people who listen to Monday Match Analysis on audio. I made two videos at the beginning of the week, one on Monday, one on Tuesday as soon as the Indian Wells draw came out. This podcast will have both attached, so when it sounds like I'm wrapping up the show, stick around. It won't be the end of the podcast. Indian Wells preview and predictions will be coming your way at the end of this. How's it going, everyone? Gil Gross here. Indian Wells draw is out. Let's dig into it. This is one of the best tournaments, I think, outside of the four majors. And I, I wonder how much agreement I'll get on that. It's probably my favorite tournament outside of the four majors. The scene is great. The draw is great. Normally, people are still healthy. The season hasn't been that long. And it's it's nestled kind of in between the Australian Open and the French Open. And there's such a long break between those two tournaments that that for some reason this tournament feels elevated even above kind of the Masters 1000s that a lot of them feel like warm-ups to, for the majors. This one almost feels like a like a standalone tournament that that means a lot to all the players. The players love this tournament, always ahead of the curb in terms of technology as well. Uh, so let's kind of do the normal drill here, go quarter by quarter, start with Novak Djokovic's quarter. Top seeds, Dominic Team, Borna Choric, Nikolos Basilashvili, rather, Marco Cecchinato, Gael Monfils, and Nick Kyrgios. I feel like this quarter is probably the strongest quarter once again. This is a common theme. I'm just going to warn you. Here's a disclaimer. For some reason, a lot of the way this draw played out is similar to how the Aussie played out. Uh, I don't know why. I, I know I said in the Aussie that... Djokovic had the toughest draw. Uh, I think it. I think it happened again. Now, I mean, again, it doesn't normally matter that much if you're the best player in the tournament. Uh, then you're going to beat everyone. Who cares how tough your draw is? Uh, but I do feel like there are a lot of guys. I was actually disappointed because there are a lot of guys bunched together here who I think could have made a lot of noise in this tournament, and they have the toughest top four seed in Novak Djokovic. Before I go any further, let's talk about these conditions before I get into any predictions. I think that this is the hard court that is the most similar to a clay court in out of, out of any hard court I can think of on tour because it's slow, but more than that, it's gritty. It is extraordinarily receptive to spin. So you're going to see heavy top spin kick up higher, kick serves kick up higher, um, slice is going to kind of deaden when it hits the court. It's an incredibly gritty hardcore. And and shots that are hit, I guess, with without that spin, or, or all in all, I think this is a hard court to hit through. It takes a lot of strength to hit through this court. So you saw a guy last year like Del Potro who can hit through any court in the world. Uh, he was able to hit through this court um, and I thought in that final, Roger Federer had a lot of trouble generating offense, perhaps because this court requires so much power in order to hit through it. So to me, people who who are who hit very heavy, who don't mind a, a slow court, they're going to do well on this court. But also, I think consistency is rewarded and defense is rewarded. 
when I look at Djokovic's quarter, not only do I see a lot of guys who are in good form, I also see a lot of guys who are really good on, on clay and that this is the ideal hard court for them. Uh, a guy like Dominic Team, a guy like Marco Cecchinato, uh, the those are two guys who I think could have made some noise at this tournament. Um, you know, clay quarters, I think this is a good hard court tournament for them. Uh, that it's going to be kind of tough for them. Now, team's not in good form. Marco Cecchinato has had good results recently on clay. So, moving on, you have Borna Chorich, who's defending so many points. Got to be concerned about Chorich defending. I, I mean, I'm. It, it's always difficult. Let's just put it this way. It's always difficult, and he draws uh, likely Basilishvili. No, so likely Benoit Pair for his first match. Or, I'm sorry, that's not true. Ivo Karlovic, possibly... For his first match. That stinks for him. Basilishvili or Benoit Pair likely in the third round. That's not great either. Especially uh, Basilishvili. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Chorich right off the bat. I think that's tough for him. Monfils. I am enthused about how well Monfils has, has been playing. And I've expressed that um, many times already. And uh, I think he'll get through. You know, he gets Opelka, Meyer... Chekinato likely, or maybe Zumor or Albert Ramos. Uh, so Monfils has the potential, I think, to, to make the round of 16, I think, a, a nice draw. And then he'll draw Novak Djokovic, or possibly Nick Kyrgios. I'm sorry, that would be in the quarterfinals. I'm sorry. Uh, Novak Djokovic, or possibly Nick Kyrgios. Now, do I think Kyrgios is a threat? Obviously, that's my popcorn match. Uh, a, a no-brainer popcorn match needs to be in the first three rounds. It is Nick Kyrgios and Novak Djokovic. I hope we see that match. But again, uh, there I have no confidence that Nick Kyrgios has the ability right now to string together. I mean, it's been it's been five matches now, four or five matches in a row. Uh, I I don't see any signs that Nick Kyrgios is going to turn into a player who is is going to string together a bunch of good matches in a row. So can can he lose to Philip Kohlschreiber in his first match, second round? I think absolutely, uh, but hopefully he doesn't. Hopefully we get to see Kyrgios and Djokovic. I, I think, by the way, Djokovic would, would handle... I think he's a tough matchup for Kyrgios because, one, I think he'll be able to make Kyrgios do more running and more work than he's willing to do because his return is so much better than what Kyrgios is used to facing and uh, better than uh, so much better than anything Kyrgios faced in Acapulco, especially with Rafa kind of struggling to, to do a lot on that return. Um, and I guess Djokovic is on another level there. And also just the ability to, to work and grind and redirect and the depth, you know, it's, it's, it requires a ton of hard work, the kind of work that, that Medvedev do, did in Australia to give Djokovic a tough time. Kyrgios isn't willing, I don't think, to do that work. The drop shot, not a great play against Djokovic. Kyrgios won't be able to dominate court position against Djokovic. It, it's tough, in my opinion. Um... Dark Horse is still Monfils. Oh, I had to change the rules for Dark Horse. I know in a major, I say unseated. Indian Wells, there's not enough unseated players because the draw is so small. So outside the top 15 seeds uh, can, can be a Dark Horse. So it's still Monfils because he's playing so well. And that's another matchup I hope to see. Djokovic against Monfils, that would be 
possibly in the quarterfinals, that would be great. An upset, al uh, upset alert, Borna Chorich, it's just tough to defend th uh, that many points, and he's got some tough opponents. Simple as that. And I have Djokovic coming out of the quarter, because that's pretty much the default at this point. And uh, yeah, that's just how it is. Alexander Zverev's quarter, right under Djokovic's quarter. You got Kevin Anderson, you got Stefanos Tsitsipas, Milos Raonic, Roberto Bautista Agut, and Alex Dimonor. I have kind of this being my surprise quarter, Bautista Agut coming out. I'll tell you my, my second choice was Zverev. I nearly picked Zverev because I think this is a court where uh, ultra consistency can be rewarded. I think this is a court where it helps to be tall, and that's nice for, for the high bounce. Um, ultimately, I went with Bautista Agut. Uh, and I, I, I just kind of, I'm, I'm drawn back to the form that he was uh, that, that he was in in the beginning of the year on the hard courts. And uh, recently, I believe he had to withdraw from a tournament. Let me just pull up his profile real quick um, so we can get updated on, on him. But, but again, this is a guy who is ultra consistent, um, someone who I think has the strength, um, especially on his forehand to hit through this court. Okay, so Bautista Gut, right, he had to walk over in um, Sofia, so he had an, a, an injury problem. But other than that, I mean, he was fresh off this Aussie Open run to the quarterfinals, fresh off of winning Doha in an impressive run that was well-documented here, um, and then went to du Dubai and lost to Basilashvili in, th in three sets. But Basilashvili, so far, is really the only bad loss of RBA's 2019, and that's not even a bad loss. Basilashvili's an extremely dangerous top 20 player, and it was in three sets. So I, I think that RBA is still on this ascent this year, and that's why he's my dark horse here. That's why he's my winner here. You might have seen Upset Alert. This was a tough one, but I went with Stefanos Tsitsipas, and again, that's you know a, a lot a product of his draw. I, I don't love the high the high bounce for CT Pass on his backhand, of course. Well, you guys know that. Uh, he can draw Cam Nori or Felix Auger Aliasim, both playing really, really well right now. And that would be his first match. His second rep match would um, likely be against Bautista Agut, who has been so strong. So I think CT Pass kind of got uh, a tough draw. He got a gauntlet here. And uh, as a result, he's my upset alert. Kevin Anderson, I should note is the high seed here. Anderson is back since suffering that injury, had to pull out of the Aussie. Um, it is an elbow injury. It's mainly affected his serve, which means his legs should be fine, but, uh, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take too long for Kevin Anderson to get back into form, but still probably not ready to, to, to make a semis here. Early popcorn, Tsitsipas and Felix. Now, uh, I'm not underestimating Cameron Nori because uh, he can, he might be the favorite against FAA. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'll be interested to see the odds. That should be pretty close, actually. I'm not really sure who will be the favorite in that match. Um, so, so by no means is that a, a definite that that match will happen. But if it does, it'll be quite exciting to see uh, two of the best, uh, the brightest young stars in the sport. Let's move on. Roger Federer's quarter. 
Kane Shakori, Marin Chilich, Fabio Fanini, Kyle Edmund, Denis Shapovalov, Luka Pui. I have Federer coming out of it. Loved how he looked in Dubai. Thought he looked so spry, so quick, so athletic. Uh, great movement, great footwork, hitting really good forehands, making enough first serves, all the good stuff from Federer. Dark Horse Francis Tiafo, really good athlete who can defend on this court. Heavy spin on the forehand, heavy spin on the second serve. I love these conditions for Francis Tiafo. So um, I'm, I and then obviously he's on American soil, which which always always helps these guys. Let's take a look at uh, Francis Tiafo's draw. If I can find him, uh, Marin Cilic is my upset alert. A little, a little slow for him these courts, and and Gail Monfils really, I in my opinion, badly outplayed him um, the, the in in Cilic's last tournament in uh, Rotterdam, I guess it was. It, I'm look, I I thought that Cilic would drop out of the top ten this year. He's not playing awful. He has dropped out of the top ten. Not to say he can't get back in, but um, everyone should be suspicious that Chilich has begun a bit of a downturn here, just due to old age. Where is... I'm looking for him. I gotta control F this. Where is TFO? Oh, here he is. Plays Nicholas Jari in the first round. Kyle Edmund, likely, or not likely, if he wins the first round, he'll play Kyle Edmund in the second. Uh, that's a decent seed to draw. Edmund's also heavy spin, which which will help on this court. Fabio Fanini, perhaps, in the uh, quarters, who has been playing a lot of clay court tennis. That's another th thing interesting about Indian Wells. A lot of players have just been playing on clay. We'll get more into that when I talk about the next quarter, but that's always probably something a little bit difficult. Again, this court is the most similar to clay, but still the movement's different. The feel of it is quite different. So that's an, an interesting dynamic to play this big a tournament and a lot of guys, for a lot of guys, it'll be their first tournament back on a hard court. So that's the case for, uh, for a guy like Fabio Fanini. Early popcorn, Roger Federer, Stan Wawrinka. Pretty straightforward there. That's always a fun one. Uh, Federer, let's take a look at Federer's draw. I guess that's worth going through since I heard people care about Roger Federer. Is that true? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, this, this draw is kind of tough to look at. Okay. Um, first match for Federer will be the winner of Seppi and Gojewicz, or Gojewicz. He's better on fast courts. I'd favor Seppi in that match, but Seppi doesn't really have the weapons to hurt Federer. Um, Vavrinka Fuksovic. Now, again, I, I know I put Vavrinka Federer as my popcorn match. Fuksovic is an excellent player. More more people should know his name. He He's a really good athlete. He works really hard. He's pretty even off both wings. Big fan of Fuksovic's game. He could beat Stan, uh, potentially. So I think Federer, I mean, regardless, will have a pretty tough quarterfinal match. This draw is so small. It's weird to think that a lot of the guys get buys. They win once, or round of 16 match, sorry. They win once and they're already in the round of 16. So um, for Federer, that, that he'll have a tough round of 16 match with Fuksovic or Vavrinka. Um, then in the quarters, it would probably be Nishikori. If not Chilich, if not Shapovalov, maybe Puy. But uh, I think I think it would be Nishikori, and 
I wonder what their head-to-head -head is. I'm not sure, but again, uh, nothing nothing too threatening for Federer. He should be pretty happy with his draw, except for a tough match against Stan. He loves that head-to-head. -head. He knows what to do against Stan. And um, Fuksovic is a good player, but nothing Federer uh, will, you know, can't handle, obviously. So, good draw for Federer. Um, lastly, Nadal's quarter. Top seeds, John Isner, Karen Hatchinov, Daniil Medvedev, David Gafan, Diego Schwartzman. This draw, I mean, this quarter is, is a bit of a snooze fest. As you can see, I, I honestly, I genuinely could not find a match for early popcorn. I just could not. I don't know why. But, like, there's just nothing in the first three rounds that's particularly interesting. Um, I'd say that Nadal, the the thing, the, what I would circle for him is... Medvedev and Gafan, because those are both guys who are some of the best on tour at redirecting the ball, changing direction, and what what that does basically. If 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 you are facing a guy who's going to go down the line with a lot of frequency, you're just going to simply do more running. That's just that that's going to be the effect of that. You're not going to be able to camp in the cross courts and 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 play a lot of rallies without doing a lot of running. Medvedev and Gafan, both guys with impeccable timing and such a good ability to redirect, especially their backhands. Nadal will be having to hit on the run. So that's what I've been watching for Nadal. That's what looked pretty bad against Djokovic in the final. That's what looked bad against Kyrgios. Nadal's going to get tested here. I think he gets through it. He's strong. These conditions are, are good uh, for Rafa. He's won here before. He's made a bunch of finals here before. He's, he's good on this court. And uh, I think he'll he'll have enough firepower to get through. In my opinion, it, it'll be Medvedev getting through Gafan. Those two will play in the round of 16 for a chance to play Rafa in the quarters. Rafa drew Diego Schwartzman as his closest seed. That's a good draw. Schwartzman's a guy who's been playing on um, primarily clay. And Isner on the other side. That's, I mean, Isner in the United States is, is always a threat. But... Um, I guess that's not great, actually. I wouldn't want to play Isner, but um, Isner is not having a good year. In fact, the first good result he's had was making the semis in Acapulco, pretty much. So, that's that. In fact, Guido Pela is my is my dark horse who would play Isner if he gets through in the round of 16. The reason Pela is my dark horse is he has quietly put together unbelievable results on the red clay this year going against my thing, that it's hard to for Indian Wells to be your first hardcourt tournament, but still, Pela, I believe, is like 11-3 on clay this year. And, I mean, I know for, for people who only follow the top of the sport, the best players, that number could be something like taken for granted, but when, when we're talking about professional tennis players 20 through 75... To be 11-3 means you are doing awesome. So so Pela's ranking is skyrocketing. He won he won the title. He won the Brazil Open uh, last week. And uh, where was that in Brazil? Sao Paulo. Um, so Pela's been on fire. If he can take this momentum to uh, Indian Wells, watch out, watch out for him. He's been playing great. Upset alert, Schwartzman. Tough, tough because I, I don't like players. I think it's 
it's good to have a lot of physical strength on these courts. It's a physical court. It it will not it will not reward it will not be very forgiving on players who don't offer a lot of pop. That's that's kind of my opinion on these uh, because the court is so gritty. In my opinion, it will not reward. You got to generate your own pace, and it's going to be hard to hit through these courts. So upset alert, Schwartzman, just based on the conditions. And early popcorn, none. Okay, final weekend. Djokovic, Bautista Agut. Um, Djokovic gets through in two sets, avenges Doha from earlier this year. Federer and Nadal right now, I like Federer. I'm, I'm not going to go through a whole spiel on this because if this match happens, you'll get a really long video from me about my pick. So I'm, I'm really, I do not want to get into it right now. I'm not going to get into a hypothetical if Federer played Nadal in the semis. Let's hope it happens. That would be exciting. And uh, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when it comes. In the final, Djokovic, Federer, and right now still Djokovic, three sets. I, Again, it's been encouraging stuff by Federer, but he's going to need a Djokovic who's a little bit down, and he'll need courts that are probably a little bit faster than these courts at Indian Wells, which of course he's had great success at the last two years, made the final last year, lost to Delpo the year before that. Um, won the title, I believe he beat Nadal in the final, if I remember correctly. So Federer's been great here, but I got Djokovic, and uh, again, right now we're in a we're in a position in men's tennis where it's going to be pretty tough to pick against Djokovic until in a big tournament at least um, until he he shows us exactly what his vulnerabilities are. At some point in the year, that probably will happen, but uh, that time is not now. Looking forward to ramping up the coverage for Indian Wells. I love this tournament once again, so hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Is it just me, or was this an insanely fun week of tennis? I don't know what's the bigger story. Roger Federer, his 100th career title, nine away from Jimmy Connors now, and he did it against Stefanos Tsitsipas, the man who beat him at the Australian Open a little over a month ago, or Nick Kyrgios, the entertaining 23-year-old, supremely talented Australian who, God, it's just, it's never a dull moment with him. He played scintillating tennis this week. It was riddled with controversy. He took out Rafa Nadal, Stan Wawrinka, John Isner, Sasha Zverev, an unbelievable week, and he was at a career low point, down to number 73 in the world. Out of nowhere, he's won Acapulco. So, going to get into Federer, going to get into Kyrgios. Uh, uh, there will probably be a little bit of time for the comments at the end, but let's get started first with Federer. And what jumped out to me here with Federer was his court positioning. 40% of balls he took inside the baseline. He rushed Stefanos Tsitsipas. He suffocated Tsitsipas. He came in off of second serve returns. He mixed in serve volley, but he was able to really take the reins. He was able to, to stay in the driver's seat here because of his court position and how, his, and how dominating his positioning was in the match. He was just a step ahead of Stefanos Tsitsipas. He blitzed him, flat out. 
never got broken. First serve, over 70%. His forehand was on point. It was consistent. It was stinging. It was incredible tennis from Roger Federer. The best I've seen him play probably since Hopman Cup, which uh, where I thought he played really well. Um, maybe the best I've seen him play since Paris. But all in all, reminiscent of the way he was taking the ball incredibly early on a very consistent basis in 2017, something he completely got away from in 2018. And we were wondering, where, where is it? What happened to the, to the Roger Federer who was allergic to defense? And that's how Federer played on one of the fastest courts in the world in Dubai. He played like he was allergic to defense. But I want to be very, very clear about something. Because I don't want to make it sound like Roger Federer had some brilliant idea to play inside the baseline. And that was the difference here. That's not what happened. That's, that's too obvious. Of course Federer knows that he wants to play inside the baseline and take the ball on the rise. And that when he positions himself in, you know, inside the baseline, it makes it so much easier for him to ruthlessly attack any short ball. It makes it so much easier for him to transition to the net. It makes it less likely that he's going to fall behind in a rally and play defense. It's going to give his opponent across the court less time. Federer knows all of that. So it wasn't like it was some idea that he had to play inside the court. No. It starts and ends with foot speed. It starts and ends with the movement. Federer was so quick at the tail end of last week. The footwork was impeccable. It is so, so hard to play inside the baseline. Otherwise, more people would do it. I mean, why doesn't everyone do this? Because they're not fast enough to do it. Their feet aren't quick enough to do it. Not to mention, it takes more racket skill. Uh, to take the ball on the rise, it takes more coordination. It takes more precision, more timing. Uh, the margins are a little bit slimmer when it comes to kind of closing your racket face over the ball. All of that. Of course, Federer has that racket skill. But it can't just be racket skill. It's also your feet. And uh, I, got a, I got this question on Twitter last week. How come Rafa Nadal stands so far back when he returns serve? In Acapulco, Nadal stood about a foot, against Kyrgios rather, uh, Nadal stood about a foot in front of the back wall when he was returning serve. Didn't matter if it was a first serve or if it was a second serve. Rafa was basically on the back fence. Why does he do that? Time. He wants time to set up. That's, that's the one and only answer. He wants time to get his feet in the right position, and he wants time... Um, to take a full swing at the ball. When you're, when you're further up, it requires you to shorten your swing. The technique, you literally need to change your entire technique. Nadal would, would rather not do that. Nadal wants the time. All this to say, Federer's ability to play inside the baseline, to take 40% of balls inside the baseline against an aggressive player like Tsitsipas, all has to do with his feet. And I just thought he was lightning quick, gliding around the court, getting in the right position. Ideally, you want to get behind the ball. I mean, that's what footwork is about. You have a strike zone, and you're trying to get the ball in that strike zone. And ideally, you get to that spot as quickly as possible so you have time to set your feet. So you have time for basically to, to not hit on the run. 
And on a fast court, Federer was able to play inside the baseline, and it looked like he was in the right spot in plenty of time. He was just quicker than he was in Australia. Simply faster. And I know the question that all of you guys will, will probably be wondering is why. And that's a question I don't have the answer to. I don't know why he looked so much faster against Tsitsipas in Dubai than he did in Australia. But he was. And the... I'd say the, the flow of the match was completely reversed, where Tsitsipas was having to play overwhelmingly defense, could could never really work his way into rallies on Federer's on return games. When Federer was on serve, Tsitsipas couldn't sniff anything but defense. That's all he could do. Again, that had a lot to do with Federer first serve percentage over 70%, not missing any forehands, coming to the net a ton, all that. Um, I want to talk about Tsitsipas as well real quick. He played Monfils in the semifinals. And in my opinion, Gail Monfils has turned a corner. He has never used his talents any better than he is right now. I like to comment on my last video uh, last week. Someone said, or two weeks ago, someone said, uh, Monfils' game has been sfixed. And that's a, a reference to um, Elena Svitolina, who's his, his newfound love. I don't know if the two are related, but Gail Monfils is playing the best tennis of his life. That match was grueling. It was long. It was a third set tiebreak. I think Tsitsipas was a little bit weary heading into this final. The two games that Federer broke... He won at 6-4, 6-4, I'm pretty sure. Um, the two games Federer broke in each set, Tsitsipas made a handful of errors in both of them. So that should be noted. But at the end of the day, Federer was incredibly efficient on his service games, and that, that was because of, of how high level he was at. A lot of people were talking, I want to just, again, on, on Tsitsipas, a lot of people were calling me out last week because I was looking at, I was reading Tsitsipas's report card from last week, or the report card was really from way back, beginning of 2017, Barcelona, uh, or I guess not quite the beginning, but early 2017, Barcelona, when Tsitsipas made his breakout tournament and made the final against Nadal, beat Dominic Thiem. And I gave, and he missed some volleys in that tournament, or in the last two matches of that tournament at least. So I gave his volleys a C minus, and I said that might be a little bit harsh. Maybe bump it up to a C, but still his volleys aren't that good. And people were up in arms. They were like, "What are you talking about? His no way, no chance his volleys are a C." So I'm gonna, I'll give that to you. I'll give this to you. Uh, that's too harsh, and I'm, I'm off base on that. I paid extra attention this week, and here's what I saw from Titi Pass's volleys. First of all, his approach shots are unbelievable, especially off his forehand wing. He knows how to take time away, but the key is he's so precise off his forehand. He puts the ball exactly where he wants it. And that's kind of the key with approach shots. So I think his, his approach shots are at such a high quality so consistently, and then he has such a good feel for closing in on the net. He has really good movement up there. He's also six foot four. That helps, but but he his footwork's really good up there. He closes in very nicely. 
I think Tsitsipas creates for himself a lot of easy volleys. That's a good that's a good quality by him. So I think he puts a lot away at the net because his approach shots are such high quality, because he closes the net so well, he gets a lot of high, easy put-away volleys, and he's able to punch them deep. Where I think he's weaker is when he needs to use his more feel, more hands, more touch. Most volleys and singles are short-angle volleys. It's very different from doubles. So some players, in my opinion, are good volleyers and doubles, not good volleyers and singles. How is this possible? In fact, uh, someone's, uh, I was on my live with Jeff Salzenstein. We both agree that Sasha Zverev's volleys aren't very good. And someone commented, how could you say that? He won the doubles with his brother uh, Misha in Acapulco. Okay, volleying in doubles and volleying in singles is completely different, completely unrelated. I shouldn't say that. That's too much of an exaggeration, but it's different. Here's the thing. In doubles, you're generally going to be punching your volleys. You're going to be... Your target is the other net player, and you're hitting it hard at their feet or hard at their armpit, because it's, it's very hard to... It's very hard to volley back when the ball is coming at your armpit. Also very hard when it comes at your feet. But it's not a touch volley. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a power volley, right? In doubles. In singles, it's short angle. Generally, your volley should land inside the service box. You're trying to mute the ball. You're trying to take the pace off the ball. And that requires a lot of good feel, good hands. So, I know me as a player, I was a pretty good volleyer in doubles. I'm not a good volleyer in singles because I don't have great hands. So I think Tsitsipas is pretty good at punching his volleys deep. That's what he normally does, even in singles. He's generally punching his volleys deep. I don't think he's as good at the, sh at the short angle stuff. Um, I think his volleys are still, you know, kind of average. But he does a really good job at coming to the net and finishing at the net. Those two can be mutually exclusive. But a C was too harsh. You guys are right. When it comes to his backhand, which in his report card got a B, you got to look at how, how players are beating him. When Tsitsipas loses, when players are finding short balls, when a side breaks down, it's his backhand side every time. Especially when players are able to put him on the run on that side, when players are able to kick it up high on that side, when players are able to rush him on that side, when players are able to jam him on the on the serve on that side. I mean, it, if you look at the big picture, how players are able to make progress against Tsitsipas, generally that progress goes through his backhand wing. It's not a terrible shot. Especially on like an indoor hard court, especially on a low bouncing court, especially when he has time to set up for it, then it can be quite a good shot. But I stand by this. Players are able to break down that side. Players aren't able to break down his forehand side. That's why his forehand is an A, A+. His backhand is a B, B+. Nothing wrong with that. You can still be extremely successful with a B, B-plus backhand. I think you can even win majors with a B, B-plus backhand. I mean, especially when, when your serve and your forehand is, is as good as, as Tsitsipas's. 
especially the forehand. I want to, I'm going to get into Federer a little bit more later on. Um, big picture, Indian Wells, what all this means for Roger Federer. I'll get in, I'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, but for now, let's let's move on to Nick Kyrgios. Good time to show the thumbnail. It's Nick with the golden pear and the sombrero. Always a, an excellent, excellent look in Acapulco. I love the fans in Mexico. This tournament is always electric that way. The match against Nadal. Second round. Kyrgios looked like he was about to quit. He looked like he was down and out, disinterested in the first set. And that all changed eventually. He was able to lock it in and uh, get some adrenaline rushes. He got some, He, you know, Nadal didn't return very well. Uh, what Nadal was doing really well was playing first strike tennis. That was all good. What Nadal wasn't doing very well, defending, keeping Kyrgios at bay, hitting on the run. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Eventually, it gets to a third set tiebreak, and Kyrgios is down three set points. I mean, three match points. He hits a drop shot, saves the first one. Beautiful drop shot. Kyrgios gets a net cord on the second shot, so it's a net cord and it goes over the net, I think for a winner, on a volley. On the third set point, Nadal hits a net cord, which was probably going to be a winner, and it lets Kyrgios back into the point, and Kyrgios wins the point. So that was from 6-3. Kyrgios tied it at 6-all. Nadal then hit a double fault. And then uh, Kyrgios had match point on his serve and was able to um, put it away. Rafa missed a uh, backhand on the run, tried to hit it cross-court, and pushed it long. At 4-6, Kyrgios uh, hit a serve before Nadal was ready. Nadal had his hand up. He wasn't ready. And the chair umpire said, Nadal wasn't ready, that's not all right. And Kyrgios started arguing and complaining that it should be at my pace. You know, that I, I shouldn't have to wait for him. It's The rule is you go at the, the pace of the server. And I think Nadal was upset with, with that argument from Kyrgios. Nadal feels like it, it's the gentleman's thing to do. You wait until the returner's ready, and then you serve. So that rubbed Nadal the wrong way. Then... At at five six, Kyrgios serving. Kyrgios hit the first serve, and then before he hit the second serve, he said his string broke. The commentator said his string broke, but he pointed at his frame, and I didn't see any broken string. And also, he didn't act like he broke a string. I don't know what happened, but in between his first and his second serve, he he went to get a new racket. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know what happened. I think Rafa was really ticked off. I think he was rattled by Nick Kyrgios. And uh, 
not to take anything away from from Kyrgios, but uh, I think that played into the, the final moments of this match. This is what was said after the match. Nadal said he lacked respect for the public, the rival, and towards himself. Kyrgios said, look, I'm different, Rafa's different, he can focus on what he needs to do. Basically, I'm not going to listen to any of that. I'm just not surprised by this, and I don't think anyone should be. This is natural. These are two personalities, two characters, with opposite ideologies, completely different characters altogether. Rafa Nadal is all about... He's all about etiquette. He's all about respecting the game. He's all about hard work, 100%. Professionalism. These are all the things that Nadal values. Like, Rafa values professionalism to a really high degree. Nick Kyrgios simply doesn't. Two athletes with clashing personalities are going to have conflict. There is nothing wrong with this. And if tennis markets this the correct way, this should do massive numbers the next time these two play. I, I always have my doubts about the ability of, uh, you know, for these tournaments and the rights holders and people involved in tennis to, to market the sport correctly. But technically, next time Kyrgios and Nadal play, it should be a big event. Because these are two guys with completely different personalities. And I know for a fact, some fans relate to Nadal, some fans relate to Nick Kyrgios. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. They're nothing like each other. Of course they're going to clash. Of course there's going to be controversy. There's nothing wrong with that. Tennis people have trouble understanding this. Tennis people are allergic to conflict. Conflict is good. Embrace it. Conflict, people like conflict. Your favorite movie, conflict. Your favorite TV show, conflict. You want tennis to grow in popularity? Do you want it to, to, to rise out of its niche status? Conflict is a good thing for that. It just is. Uh, is tennis okay how it is without conflict? Absolutely. We all love it. But to hit the mainstream, you need conflict. And that's not just true for tennis. That's true for a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, so many sports. So, so many sports. You need conflict. So, um, we'll get more into this because I know the first comment that I'm going to read, the top comment, the most liked comment was kind of about this. I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about Nadal, uh, then a little bit about Kyrgios when it comes to uh, just tennis and, and tactics, and then big pic. Well, big picture, Kyrgios will, will also come a little bit later. Um, Australian Open Rafa Nadal was playing the most aggressive we've ever seen him play, the best first strike tennis we've ever seen him play, the biggest forehands he's ever hit, really good serving, great, great purpose. 
with every shot. Offensive purpose, offensive relentlessness, ruthlessness. All Those are all good ways, I think, to, to describe Nadal's game in Australia. And most people, me included, marveled at this new Rafa Nadal. As someone who's added, who's adapted, and along with the previous skills that he's shown throughout his career, he's added kind of a, a new layer of offense. In hindsight, it's possible that this was multi-layered. That yes, it's great that Nadal has learned to mix it up, that Nadal has learned to play more offensively, that his forehand has become so adept in the midcourt at finishing off rallies, etc., etc. But perhaps it was a bit of a defense mechanism as well. A Nadal who didn't feel as comfortable defending and a Nadal who didn't feel as comfortable hitting on the run. Right now, the one thing that, in my opinion, Nadal doesn't look entirely comfortable doing is hitting on the run. I see a lot on his forehand side, more on his forehand side, a little bit less, but still sometimes on his backhand side. He just doesn't look that good on the run. When he's set, I think he's hitting the ball great. When he's on the run, not so much. A couple technical things I've seen is I've seen him kind of try to take stutter steps before he gets to the spot, and I think that's almost to kind of cushion his knee a little bit to kind of decelerate instead of just running to the spot and stopping on a dime and really planting hard on his knee. I've seen him try to kind of decelerate prematurely at times. I've seen him at times not decelerate prematurely, but decelerate a little bit too late. So kind of hit through the spot and then after he hits it, then he kind of stops and, and maybe takes a couple extra steps the wrong way before he goes to recover the other way. I've seen that a few times. And then sometimes I've just seen some tentativeness and when he's on the run, and I've seen sometimes just the ball's not, been, the ball's not um, being hit to as high a quality as he would like, which could be attributed to the lower half and the kind of drive that he's getting out of his legs when he's on the run. It's just something to watch out for, something that I'll be watching out for. Is is the new style of play that we've seen Nadal, who's now dropped two matches in a row, the style we saw in Australia, was that a defense mechanism or was that an added new layer? Because I'm a little bit concerned about Nadal's defense right now. So let's see what happens. Let's continue to watch it. I'm not making any declarations, but it's something to watch. Nick Kyrgios, a guy who, when he beat Nadal at Wimbledon, I said this guy has to be the most talented player since Roger Federer when it comes to racket skills. Feel, touch, hands, uh, really just, I mean, I almost separate physical attributes and talent. It's good genetics, it's great athleticism, but when it comes to giftedness, what a player is naturally able to do with the racket. To me, Nick Kyrgios is the most talented guy since Roger Federer. 
I think I stand by that. I mean, this is a guy whose drop shot can be automatic, who doesn't even use his legs and can hit a forehand 100 miles per hour in the corner. A guy who can find any angle he wants. A dude who can shorten his, his, back, his backhand to almost no backswing and still take it, on, take it on the rise and change direction and put it wherever he wants and inject pace into the ball. Uh, he, can, he can come up with incredible volleys. He rarely... I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. His serve is unbelievable. His forehand is the shot that people don't talk about enough. I've never seen anyone have more variation on their spins on the forehand win. Kyrgios can flatten it out like Del Potro, or he can spin it like Nadal, Kyle Edmund, Jack Sock. I mean, he can do both. Who can do both? I can't think of anyone who can hit flat or spin and kind of pick their spots, right? To, to use spin to get the angles that, that um, he can get, but to also flatten it out and inject the pace. And to do what, what Federer was doing in Dubai, to take the ball on the rise, to stay inside the baseline, it's an incredible combination. Think about all the ways you can attack. Think about depth. And think about how good Nick Kyrgios' drop shot is. Think about pace and how hard Kyrgios can, can hit his forehand when he flattens it out. Think about width and the angles Kyrgios can find on his forehand when he puts injects some spin on the ball. Think about time, how early Kyrgios can take his forehand. He checks off every single box with his forehand. So he's, he's unreal. Unreal. And when he's physically up to the task and mentally up to the task, he's super hard to beat. So I just wanted to say, say that piece. More on Kyrgios coming up, but first let's get into some of these comments. David Shin, do you personally think Nadal was being a bit of a sore loser? He tries to control pace all the time, so it seemed odd that he would call Nick disrespectful for going too fast. If he meant Nick's underhand serving... Is that really something that's disrespectful? Okay, so Nadal didn't clarify. Was it the was it the pace? Was it the underhand serve? I think both. Uh, I think both kind of bothered Nadal. But let's let's go kind of point by point. First of all, the whole play at the server's pace thing is a total myth. It doesn't exist. It never has existed because the returner can always put their hand up. And if they put their hand up, wait, the server has to wait. So for some reason, there's this saying perpetuated in tennis that you have to play to the server's pace, which simply, I don't know what's in the rules. I don't read the rule book. I don't know about you. I don't read the rule book. I just know how the rules are enforced. And the way the rules are enforced, you don't have to play for the, to, the, to the server's pace. The point starts when both players are ready. Now, the server dictates the pace to an extent. And I would say that there's a margin there where, where if the server's waiting at the line, the returner needs to get in position to return. But if there's kind of, if they're working on getting in position or they're going through a routine and they're not quite ready, the server needs to wait. So I would say 
the server dictates pace at a at a time interval. You know, it, it's almost like a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's it's not finite. It's it's loose. So to me, Nadal is in the right on this one. Not that it was disrespectful, because you know it says Nadal controls people's pace. Yeah, he, he does. He plays slow. But it's not like Kyrgios can't get him to play faster. He can get him to play faster. He did get him to play faster. It's not like Nick Kyrgios was sitting at, at the baseline waiting every single point for Nadal to get ready. He wasn't. This particular point, Nadal had his hand up, wait. Kyrgios served it. It doesn't count. The, the returner gets to put their hand up and say, hey, I need three more seconds. And that's how it is. So I don't think Nadal was calling Kyrgios disrespectful for going too fast. I think Nadal was calling Kyrgios disrespectful for arguing that it should have been an ace on match point. On match point, Kyrgios was saying that should have been an ace even though Nadal wasn't ready. And, and Rafa's thinking, that's how you want to win? You want to win on an ace when I wasn't even playing? Like, Nadal has this complex where Nadal feels that the sport should be honored above that level. And that's not how to win a match. Underhand serving. This is where I disagree with Nadal. So I agree with Nadal that Kyrgios has no argument there when it comes to the pacing. I disagree with Nadal about the underhand serve. It's a, it's a fair play. There's no rule against it. And if Rafa is going to stand back here, then that's a tactic that people should be allowed to use against him. It's not an effective tactic. It's probably not going to work. It's tough to pull off. But if, if people want to incorporate that, they get to incorporate that, plain and simple. No questions asked. So do I think Nadal was being a sore loser? No. I think he would have said it after a win, too. I don't think Nadal's comments have anything to do with him winning the match or losing the match. Nadal will never agree with the way Nick Kyrgios goes out about his business. He will never agree with it. So if he wins, he won't agree with it. If he loses, he won't agree with it. It's not a sore loser. It's just clashing personalities. In Terry and Terry, our friend, do you think that Federer will catch Connors almost impossible record on 109 ATP titles? Right now, that doesn't seem like the trajectory for Federer. Again, I always say this, when it comes to predicting these long-term records, I personally feel like I'm predicting longevity. And I think it's really impossible to predict longevity. How am I supposed to predict longevity? I don't know. As of now, that seems pretty steep, right? Nine more titles. He's, especially because of the, uh, the schedule that he plays. With that being said, if you give an over-under, if you set it at like 105, five more titles... I mean, the reality is, it's probably going to be really close. Sorry if that's not a good answer, but that's all I got. Stefano uh, Disparati, another friend. Finally, the bad guy is back. In Acapulco, 
Nick beat uh, consecutively in Nadal, Vavrinka, yep, everyone he beat. To me, such a run can only mean that Kyrgios finally decided to play tennis seriously and to train hard, because it's impossible to win four hard matches like those he won in Acapulco if you're not in great shape from a, uh-oh, I cut it off. That's on me. Um, okay, well, I did read the comment in full, and essentially, there's not much much more, but essentially he's saying, this is amazing, Curios is here to stay, and, and this is this is a big breakthrough. I, I gotta say, you gotta pump the brakes, in my opinion. Last week, Curios lost to Radu Albat. And refused to move because of his knee tendonitis. Kyrgios has not been able to stay healthy still, even this season. And I don't think at any point in his in his career, from what I've seen, will he be able to stay healthy for extended periods of time. He will always drop matches because he's feeling pain in his hip, his back, or his knee. He has the body of a 38-year-old. I'm, you know, I don't want to be too quick to accuse him of not putting in the really, really, really hard work that it that requires um, staying healthy and playing on the ATP World Tour. Because believe me, if you if you see these pros day to day life, they spend hours every day making sure that their bodies are going to be able to withstand the rigors of playing on the tour without getting injured. It is an absolute grind. To make sure that your body is going to be able to withstand that. Does Nick Kyrgios put in that work? Probably not. I can't say for sure. I'm not with him day to day. But but coming from a guy who has admitted admitted to being not as motivated. You know, not 100% motivated when it comes to just his goals in this sport. He probably doesn't do enough injury prevention. So one week... Not buying it. Not buying into this will be a turning point in Nick Kyrgios' career. I mean, he was just at a low, a, a career low point, 74 in the world. The guy dropped to 74 in the world because he could not stay healthy last year and didn't look any better this year. It was just one week he flipped a switch and started feeling good, started moving well, had enough focus. And if not, and I don't want to take anything away for, from him, but, but what if those two net cords didn't go his way? On match point, two net cords on two straight points went his way against Nadal. On match point against him. So, what would we be saying if that happened? And I don't really love that argument, but essentially, I will warn you. And I would put money on Nick Kyrgios not staying healthy for another four weeks. Like, in the next four weeks, he will lose a match because he can't move. And that's no way to build consistent results. Uh, okay. There's one more comment, but I gotta end it here because this is has uh, become too long. Um, so, obviously so much to talk about here. I'll probably come out with an Indian Wells draw prediction video as well uh, later tonight. So, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.